Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello, fabulous people of the Take On Board community. I would love it if you could join me at the next Take On Board event, where I'll be in conversation with Morgana Ryan about developing strategy. You'll get some fabulous tips as well as get to meet others from the Take On Board community. It's a virtual event, so you can come from wherever you are in the world. Early bird tickets are on sale until the 7th of May, so get in as soon as you can. The link to book is in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Kate Keneally about voluntary administration, what it is, what it can be used for, and why directors should consider it as part of their governance framework. First, let me tell you about Kate. Kate is a partner at Corda Mentha and a registered liquidator. She brings over 13 years' experience specialising in formal insolvency, restructuring and litigation strategy. In her role as a registered liquidator, she, in effect, assumes the position of the board on each company to which she is appointed. Kate has a proven track record dealing with small enterprises through to large corporate groups across a broad range of industries and restructuring scenarios, including playing a lead role in the area administration. Most recently, Kate was appointed as Administrator of Equestrian Australia Limited. Fun fact, or maybe not so fun fact, Kate is one of 7.6% of women who are registered liquidators across Australia. Whilst quarter mentha are punching above their weight on this, they have doubled the national average, this still only represents 16% of the registered liquidators there. Kate is passionate about nurturing and supporting women to become registered liquidators so we can change this statistic. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Kate. Thank you so much for having me, Helia, and thank you for that very lovely introduction. <laughs> a pleasure, and we will come back to that fun fact, because uh, I'd love to not only talk voluntary administration, but talk a bit about gender equity and how that impacts both your sector, but also what the advice might be for us uh, on boards. But we'll come to that. Firstly, as always, I'd just love to dig a little bit deeper about you. So... Can you tell me a story about young Kate that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Ah, okay, sure. So 
young Kate really didn't know what Kate wanted to do. So Kate went to university and studied accounting and law and was still undecided in her last year. But there had been the collapse of ANSET in my last year of university. And for the first time in 15 years, my university offered insolvency law as a subject. So I thought I would see what it was all about. And we did an assignment on insolvency in the press and this firm called Cordamentha kept popping up in news articles nearly on a daily basis. And I thought, oh, this actually sounded quite interesting. And given I didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer or an accountant, it seemed to be the perfect mix of the two. And so I took a gamble and applied for a graduate role with Cordamentha many, many years ago. And uh, I guess they can say that the rest is history because I was successful and uh, I have now been at Cordamentha some 14 years, uh, starting as a graduate and uh, last year being promoted to partner. So it was that fateful university subject selection that brought me to where I am today. It's interesting to hear two parts of that. Well, a, that fateful university subject, it's not often that it does actually end up, I shouldn't say it's not often, but it's not always the case that those university subjects end up having that relevance in the real world. So that is fantastic to hear. And uh, interesting to hear about it being in the news and the ANSET side of things. Listeners might know, you might know that I was at the Australian Services Union at the time and I was the organiser for the airline industry. So Cordamentha's role in the ANSET administration is also very firmly etched in my mind from that time as well. And presumably, if you joined the firm a few years later, you may well have still been involved because it went on for many years, that administration. It Um, did. And I think hearing you say that, it proves it's a very small world. Insolvency touches the lives of many, unfortunately. And yes, It was still running when I joined the firm and I distinctly recall organising courier packages to send airline parts to very, very random parts of the world uh, where airlines were still using the airplanes that ANSET had back in the day. Linda White was on the podcast uh, a few months ago talking about some of those impacts as well and, uh, yes, I think she has a a memory of, you know, doing random deals with people to buy aeroplane parts and who they're sold to. There's some interesting fun stories in there. (laughs) I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can go back and listen to that one if it's of interest to them as well about where aeroplane parts or aeroplanes end up um, and who the buyers are in Russia and the mafia. Hopping on a Rex plane, chances are you probably are jumping on an ANSAT plane from back in the day. So it is interesting and the legacy, I guess, still lives on. Yeah. And it, it, it did, I think, being, you know, one of the largest administrations in Australian history, I think it did bring to light for a lot of people voluntary administration and what it means. It became a much more public thing, I think, after that, certainly for me, but I think for many people because it was such a public collapse of an organisation. So, which probably brings us to our topic for today, which is around, obviously, it's around voluntary administration. So, even though that was the ANSET one was one of the more public ones, Uh, And even though people may today know a bit more about it, what is voluntary administration? Can you give us the, you know, the one-on-one? What is it and what's it used for? It's actually a very uh, dry topic, I'm not going to lie. And I think I'd probably start with the legal answer because that's probably my background. And technically, it's a Corporations Act uh, framework. So in theory, it is a restructuring tool that's available to companies that has the overarching purpose 
of maximizing the chances of a company continuing or as much of the company continuing in its existence into the future. And so when we say maximizing the chances, it's all about avoiding liquidation because liquidation as everyone perceives to be, and it is, it's the death of the company. So it's about what are the options available to keep this company alive? So in practice, it really means that a board will sit down and assess the financial position of the company and say, is the company solvent? Is it insolvent? Or is it likely to become insolvent? And normally when a board is sitting down and assessing the position of the company, it's normally after they've taken advice from an insolvency practitioner and actually assessed where the company sits and what are the options available to it. The board then must pass a formal resolution to actually appoint the voluntary administrator. And that person is considered and must be independent and must be a registered liquidator. So it is a pretty small pool of people, but they are all across the country. You mentioned in the introduction that when I take my role, I step into the shoes of the board. And that's exactly what happens when a company goes into a voluntary administration. The voluntary administrators that are appointed, they take control. But I think the important thing there is that if you've got a good board and a good management team, it's about working collaboratively together. Because I can go into a company and know nothing about the company, nothing about the industry, but voluntary administrators understand leading and managing issues in crisis. And that's the skill set that we bring to the table. I think the biggest benefit is that oftentimes when boards are going into voluntary administration, they're fighting fires all day long. Oftentimes there's issues in the business, some they can control, but often they can't. And so the administration draws a line in the sand and says, hi, Mr. Creditor, hi, Mrs. Landlord. I'm very sorry, but right now the company is taking a pause and we're going to assess the position of the company and work out what is the best path forward for this company. So for the next little while, you'll need to sit tight while we work out and devise a plan to stabilise the company and to take it forward. And finally, it's creditors who get to decide the outcome of the administration. So control does rest ultimately with the creditors and the stakeholders of the company that is in administration. So it's really important that it is a collaborative process and everyone gets taken on the journey so that the right decision is made at the end. And there are three outcomes that creditors can vote for. One is that control gets handed back to the board. That's a really rare outcome because that would mean that the company was actually solvent and it might have been a temporary hiccup that had caused the appointment of the administrators in the first place. The second is that the company execute what we call a deed of company arrangement, which again is a pretty technical term, but realistically, it's an agreement between the creditors of the company, the company itself, and the parties that become the deed administrators to agree how the company will be administered going forward. And then the third option, and unfortunately, this is in some circumstances, the only option available is liquidation. And that really will occur where there's no ability to remedy the underlying causes of distress in that company, or perhaps where directors have committed offences and there needs to be an investigation and recovery. So that I guess is voluntary administration in a nutshell, but I should add that it is a really quick process. 
it's supposed to be quick and efficient in the sense that in theory, it can be done in around 28 business days. So not a long drawn out process, but for example, I think everyone is very much aware of the voluntary administration of Virgin that took place last year. There is an ability to extend the time frame for which the voluntary administration will run. And that's a really important feature because obviously it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so with a company that size of such significance to the economy, national interests, it was really important that the administrators had that flexibility to be able to extend the time. So there are lots of ways to make it very fit for purpose for each company. Okay. Oh, there's so many things I want to delve into there. So just on that final part, so the period of administration, so if it's the second option and that is that a deed is entered into a deed of arrangement, once that deed is entered into, strictly speaking, the administration period is over and then it's implementation of that deed. That's exactly right. So at the at the time that the deed of company arrangement is signed, it could be that the administrators or the deed administrators as they then become largely stepped back and control of the company can then be handed to the board of directors so that the board will continue to trade the business into the future and the deed administrators might have an oversight role in terms of making distributions to creditors or making sure that certain milestones that are built into the deed, say, for example, the sale of an asset, are adhered to. But in some instances, it may be that the deed administrators actually retain control of the company. So most recently with Equestrian Australia, which I was appointed to with a colleague, Craig Shepherd from our Melbourne office, we put the company at the second meeting, it was agreed that the company would go into a deed of company arrangement. But one of the milestones in the deed was that we would find an entire new board for the company. And so what Craig and I remained in control for an extended period of time. And then we went through a national recruitment process to find us a new board, nine individuals who would be representative of the organisation and its interests. And once we were able to put those new directors in place, then we were able to step away. Oh, I'm not sure where to go next. Let's let's try this. So I'm interested then in the role of the board in all of this. So there's that initial decision, obviously, of the board to put the company into voluntary administration. So from that point, because we've, we've talked previously about some of the red flags and to look out for and so on, but once the board has made that decision about moving into voluntary administration, can you just talk me through in practical terms what that means for you as the registered liquidator and your relationship with the board, because you've stepped into the shoes of the board, what does that mean for the board? Are they no longer the board for that period, but then they might come back and have a role if a deed is entered into? How does that work in practice? What's the role of the board, if anything? Yeah, sure. So I guess the answer is it really depends. And I know that that's not an answer. But if we think about it from the moment that the voluntary administrator is appointed, the board, they maintain their role They don't resign, they stay in the office, but effectively all of their powers are suspended. So the Corporations Act says the administrator is now here, so the administrator is responsible for making decisions and the administrator becomes an officer of the company. But we also have in the Corporations Act requirements for the board to assist the administrator. So there are obligations to provide information to the administrator, to understand the assets, the liabilities and the financial position. 
and what the director's involvement has been in the company. Because we are obligated as administrators to actually report to creditors on what the directors say is the position of the company. And so as you can imagine, in many instances where companies have great information, a really competent board and a really competent management team, that information comes out and reconciles with where the administrators conclude the position to be. But sometimes that's not the case. And so we have to report that to creditors to say, the directors say that the company is worth $20, but in actual fact on our investigations, we think it's worth $200. And so that information needs to be provided to creditors so it's clear, it's transparent, so that they can understand how well the company was managed. Because ultimately, when it comes to the deciding the future of the company, if those directors are going to stay involved in the future governance of the company, then creditors want to know that they were doing a good job, essentially. So boards are put aside, boards are stepped to the side, their role is kind of suspended. And it sounds like they may well often have views at odds with the administrator. Let's say at a creditors meeting, do boards get to have their say as well? Or is it just the administrator? The pleasing thing is the boards get to have their say too. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes parties will want to come to the meeting and explain what actually went wrong to their mind because we actually have the first meeting of creditors within eight business days of taking an appointment. So you can learn a lot of things in eight days, but you can't learn everything. And we weren't there and involved when the issues were actually first presenting themselves. And we don't necessarily know how the board decided to make the strategic decisions that it did. Mm. So some directors will absolutely come along to meetings and explain to creditors what went wrong? And that is a great thing to be able to to speak to your stakeholders and explain the situation. Because oftentimes when companies go into insolvency, it's financial, but it's also emotional. And so being able to express your opinion and your views on how things transpired, I think is a really powerful thing for directors to be able to do. And I think you mentioned before, they've got some, you know, that's their responsibility is to work with the administrators. They've got a requirement to assist in that way. So presumably it's to both give the information to the administrators as best they can, but also to present their own case if it is slightly different. Exactly right. And the involvement and the cooperation or assistance that required really varies also depending on the size of the organisation. So if this is a small business with one director It's normally quite hands-on and quite involved. But if we're talking about an ASX-listed company, it might very well be that the board relies very heavily on management to engage with us as voluntary administrators. But as a general rule, yes, we like to have the boards involved in the process. You know, they've invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of reputational value is tied up in these companies. And, of course, the board, presumably, they actually get to choose who the administrator is. Absolutely. And if the first meeting is within eight days, you know, I would imagine that at least at that point, relationships are probably pretty good and strong. They might not always end up good and strong, I'm guessing, further down the track. Um, But at least at that stage, both the board and the administrators presumably have a pretty strong relationship because they've been chosen by the board. That's right, yes. And that's how, you know, everyone endeavours to keep it that way. But as you do say, time, events, things transpire and sometimes it doesn't always pan out that way. 
are you able to give us a live example? Like you mentioned Equestrian Australia before, and in fact, in as much detail as you can tell us, I'm particularly interested there because part of the role was to find a new board. Now, I'm really interested in how the board who appointed you and in their requirement to assist then somehow it ends up that it's finding a new board. I'm not sure how much you're able to share with us there, but if you're able to talk us through that example. Sure. I mean, maybe I'll give you two. So one is a relatively straightforward one and the other, and Equestrian Australia is I'm going to put in the slightly unique bucket. So the first one was a mining and mining services company where we took the business through a sale process after putting it in administration there was a board there, very competent and very capable, but we actually sold the business to a third party. And so as a consequence of the sale, that third party wanted to install its own directors. And so there was a very consensual agreed resignation of all of the directors so that the purchaser could appoint its own board. That is what I would say standard process for a sale through voluntary administration. Is it also... Well, how common is it, I guess, that board members, like maybe one or two board members from that organisation then end up on the new board? Is that Does that happen very often? I won't say that it happens very often, but it can happen. And sometimes that's really important from a, a continuity and a knowledge and an understanding perspective. Mm. Um, and that may be particularly also with respect to management yes. so that there is that transition of knowledge and the old business isn't lost, if you like, when a sale takes place. That can absolutely occur, but I wouldn't say that board seats necessarily were the most common. And indeed, you know, I realise in asking that question, it kind of can sound like it's like, oh, but do we get to save our board role? It's around the saving of the organisation first and foremost. And if presumably, if that can best be served by having the experience and knowledge of some of the directors or some of management, great. But if it's not best served in that way, then so be it. Yeah, and I think just to, to add to what you've just said, oftentimes we would like to bring a purchaser in so that there can be some integration prior to completion of a sale occurring so that there is a seamless handover because oftentimes when we as administrators have imposed ourselves upon a company as well, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do in the background that we need to make sure the processes and controls and the information is handed over seamlessly as well because we need to be able to walk away knowing that the purchaser and the company has everything it needs to be able to move forward in a successful way. Now, you were going to tell us about the slightly more complex uh, circumstances with Equestrian Australia. I was. So Equestrian Australia is a really interesting example because, number one, it's a national sporting organisation. So it's an organisation funded by Sport Australia or through the AIS to effectively promote equestrian in Australia, which is, it's the first time I've ever been involved in the sporting organisation. But I think the interesting factor there was as well that it's a member-based organisation. So it's a not-for-profit with something like 18,000 members around Australia. So that's a lot of people who have a vested interest in the success or otherwise of this company. The greatest difficulties that Equestrian Australia faced were with regard to its corporate governance so its funding from the national body had been withdrawn off the back of concerns about the instability within the board. There'd been very large turnover in board numbers, but also the chairs of the board. So that created a real uncertainty and I guess an unacceptable risk for the funder. 
And so that funding was ultimately withdrawn. Yeah. And so when you're dealing with a membership-based organisation that also has state-based organisations that are separate but related in the sense that they're all regarding the sport of equestrian, they're not related in the sense of a shareholder or otherwise, you really need to manage the interests of your people around the country. And so in consultation with the existing board, who were incredibly supportive of us as administrators and who made that incredibly tough decision to put the organisation into administration in the first place, they agreed with us that if we were to find an appropriately qualified, but more importantly, representative board to take the organisation forward for the good of the sport, then they would resign their positions. And so that is exactly what did in fact take place. And it was really great to be able to work with that existing board, have their support knowing that the company was indeed of company arrangement and that they would retire when some constitutional amendments were made but also when there was a board there who were competent and capable and ready to serve the sport. Mm, interesting. And the board prior to that, and maybe I'm saying two and two and it equals five here, but was it more a representative board than it was, say, a skills-based board? Is, is that the way it was structured? Was it like a representatives of the states or representatives of different parts of equestrian? I'm not going to duck the question, but I think the answer is I never spent a huge amount of time focused on what the prior board yeah. was involved in, I guess, because our, our philosophy and our approach is very much looking forward. Yeah. But I would say that it probably wasn't representative of all of the states. Right. And when you've got members all across the country and you've got big states and you've got small states, it does need to be balanced. And yeah. so that was really our focus moving forward. And it sounds like a... a um despite the organisation ending up in some difficulties that the board had a leadership role at the time, it sounds like they had an incredibly mature approach to their own role in the future of that organisation and, by the sounds of things, put their own egos aside, essentially, to step aside and allow the organisation to move into the future in a more sustainable and kind of positive way. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the administration process, that without this company having gone into administration... I think it would have been the end of this national sporting organisation, which mm. would have mean we might not be sending athletes to Tokyo. Yeah. You need an organisation like this to actually send people to the Olympics. And that would be quite devastating for participants in this sport. So the administration process gave the board the opportunity to actually turn this company around. Oh, there's so much more I can ask about voluntary administration, but I'm also interested to delve into gender equity in your profession as well before we wrap up. So we mentioned in the introduction that you're passionate about gender equity, equity and that you work in an environment that perhaps sadly has even less gender equity than most boardrooms. And let's face it, gender equity in most of the boardrooms isn't fabulous either. So two parts to that. I'm just wondering What's your advice to women who are operating in those environments and what steps do you think we can take to improve gender equity, either with registered liquidators or in boardrooms? In terms of women in organisations or industries where they're, I guess, uh, they don't make up at least half, mm. I think my advice is, number one, women need to support women because we need to stand united, we're not divided, and we need to pave that path for others coming behind us. 
it's mm. so incredibly important to bring through our junior women in our organizations and that is going to, sitting down and starting with the recruitment process from day one when we're looking for graduates in our organizations what are we doing that's immediately building in the unconscious biases into our processes because if we don't build that pipeline we're never going to be able to feel at the top and I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted and lots of people who who completely agree with that proposition but we really have to live it and breathe it and walk it every day. I'm very lucky that I've been supported by some incredibly amazing women who have come through my organization before me. And I'd like to think that I'm now doing that exact same thing with the women coming behind me. And I think it's really about reflecting on the challenges you faced and those times where you wish you had have spoken up or done something differently. And I'm making sure now I make those conscious decisions so that when my colleagues are in the room, they're the one that gets to do the talking and they're the one that gets to be heard. Because I often think if I reflect, I would have liked to have had those opportunities myself coming through. Oh, Kate, I knew the time would go too quickly. What, what are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? First and foremost, I think voluntary administration sounds far more scary than it is. And I really do think in today's environment, Having plan A, which is your status quo, we're doing great and we're going to do well into the future is a really good strategy. But I think boards these days also need to be thinking about the plan B and the plan C and the plan D. And I think snap lockdowns are the perfect example and the driving force as to why we need to have those plans on the table. And don't be afraid of putting voluntary administration if there are stresses in your organisation as one of those plans. And the second would probably be that planning early and getting help early or asking for help early with your organization will always give you the runway to set your company up for success. And sometimes voluntary administration can be the most powerful tool to set your company up for future success. Is there a resource that you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Sure, I was thinking about this. So there are, there are probably two, if I can be so greedy as to suggest yeah. two. So number one is Cordamenta actually now has its own podcast, which is, which is called Behind Business. And what that really is, is a short and sharp podcast released probably once every month where we take a deep dive into a business or an industry. We share with our listeners our perspectives as restructuring, as real estate and forensic accounting specialists on what we're seeing on the other side. We get the view of directors often, but sometimes it's the, the view of the advisor or the consultant which sometimes can, can be a different side of the coin. And then the second is, and this is probably a very popular one with your listeners, but I'm a, a little bit of a Brene Brown tragic, maybe if you could call me that. And I think some of her podcasts, particularly on the Dare to Lead series, yes. are phenomenal. You can learn so much in a half-hour podcast with Brene Brown and whoever her incredible guest speakers are. So they would be my two go-tos. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. You, you said just a moment ago that Brene Brown's half-hour podcasts are a great way to learn, and I'm guessing that people are going to have learned an awful lot out of this half-hour conversation as well. So thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us today and being so open in sharing some of those lessons from some of the administrations that you've worked on. So thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Helia. It was uh wonderful experience. Hi there. 
It's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation. Thank you.